My next guest on the Business Samurai podcast is Carl Yaku. Carl is the author of The Game of Value Creation, which just released at the end of September this year. In this, he talks about how blue chip companies and private equity investors approach value creation through the governance, strategy, and finance of their companies. He is also the creator of the Game of Value Creation Training, an immersive digital transformation that leverages strategies used by private equity funds to enhance the valuation of the businesses they acquire and meet their target returns. He currently leads KYVC, a Chicago-based advisory that is focused on helping private businesses attain a higher valuation using the same tactics and insights as public companies and private equity funds. We jumped right into our conversation talking about the types of deals that he's done, which have been valued over $1 billion and how they were structured and kind of the steps and processes that you go through when you're evaluating deals within mergers and acquisitions and private equity. So please enjoy my conversation with Carl as and the author of The Game of Value Creation here on the Business Samurai Podcast. Do you enjoy talking business? Do you enjoy reading about business? Do you geek out over the entrepreneurial journey? If so, then you are in the right spot. The Business Samurai Podcast brings you the stories told by the people themselves. You'll be immersed in a wide variety of industries, from venture capital to gourmet popcorn, learning how to be a better leader, or the personalities behind solving the broadband crisis. At The Business Samurai, we believe it takes a wide variety of skill sets and experiences to be successful in business and life. Our aim is to not only entertain, but educate. For you to recognize how successful tactics and motivations in one industry can help propel you forward in your own unique business. Sit back, enjoy, and welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I am your host, John Barker. Carl, it's great to have you here today. Carl, you've got the uh, new book just dropped, The Game of Value Creation. It's awesome. And so I want to dive into a lot of the principles of your experience, you know, the, the finance experiences you bring from investment banking, private equity to kind of the con consultation work that you're doing now, trying to help other companies scale a, a an asset. But uh, can you kind of talk some of the deals that you work through? You got any specific case studies? I know you've done like over a billion dollars worth of, worth of uh, deals in your lifetime. Any, anything really stand out in some of your experiences? Uh, I mean... The interesting thing about deal making, which I'm sure you know, John, is that there's no deal that is similar to the next one. And so oftentimes what you end up uh, getting yourself into is something that you didn't expect. Uh, because if you look at the deal process itself from when you start sourcing a transaction to the time you close it, there are many hoops that you have to jump to, through as a deal maker. And oftentimes you have to submit a non-binding offer before you really get access to the books and get to speak with the management team and do your due diligence and get the advisors needed to do due diligence. So when you submit an unbinding offer, you need to obviously give a high level indication of where you think the value of the business is. Uh -huh. But when you do the DD exercise, when you conduct the due diligence exercise, and that is a process that usually takes six to 12 weeks and it entails everything that you would want to diligence yourself. So business due diligence, but it would also entail bringing in lawyers, bringing in consultants, bringing in accountants. You really want to bring in technical advisors. You really want to get that 360-degree view of how good the business is in reality and what chance do you stand to justify that valuation you submitted in the letter of intent or the heads of terms. And so what comes out from this DD process is what we call red flags. So you've got all these big law firms, all these big consultants, all these big accounting firms. They submit red flag reports. 
And the whole premise of having red flag reports is to either say whether the hypothesis holds for that deal or not. And there's no business that is squeaky clean, as you would appreciate. <laughs> and so every single time, I think the most interesting part is starting from a valuation that really anchors the seller, right? So when you say evaluation of 30 million or 100 million or 200 million, and it gets them excited, subject to due diligence findings, what often happens after due diligence is that you realize that you need to make certain adjustments to that valuation because you really looked into things like the quality of the receivables. You really looked into whether the business is in current litigation or not. You really looked into the quality of the earnings of the business and whether the business has a high level of concentration risk to a certain number of vendors that it, it is exposed to. And so when you combine all these different red flags, you're going to come up with a revised valuation. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting bit would be to have that challenging discussion with an eager seller who is in their mind done with the business, who's on their way out, and tell them, hold on a minute. This is what we found. And these are the adjustments to the valuations that are implied from these findings. And this is not us coming from nowhere telling you that you know, your business is worth 30% less or 20% less than what we initially thought it would be. This is third-party advisors who are very credible, who came into the picture, who got all the information, and who are issuing these reports on a reliance basis. And so that becomes an interesting dis discussion in itself because the seller obviously is not happy with, with what's happening. They have communicated a different number to their shareholders or to their board or mm -hmm. to whoever uh, stands to benefit from that sale. And then it becomes, you know, that difficult conversation that is happening and them agreeing to that revised valuation. And so the majority of deals that I've seen tend to fail from, from the LOI stage to the share purchase agreement stage, which is binding in nature. And the key reason for that is the findings from due diligence, which is a process that, as you know, should never be compromised. I mean, if you think about it on a small, much smaller scale, you would never buy a used car before taking it for a test drive. Right. You would never buy a home before bringing in someone who knows a little bit about real estate to inspect it and to make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. The same applies for businesses. And so what's been interesting from all the deals that I've worked on is the issues themselves that come out from each single deal because no issue is the same. <laughs> and each business you suddenly identify risks for and assuming the deal still goes through, you need to find ways to mitigate these risks. So if you are an active investor and you come in the picture and you wanna have a certain level of say in day-to-day -day operations, you need to lay out these risks, ideally in what we call the risk register, identify them, lay them out, figure out how to mitigate these risks and then have a risk monitoring framework so that you could keep these risks in check. And some of them are not really within your control. So there are risks that as a business owner, you would be able to mitigate yourself, but there are risks also that you cannot control, such as regulatory risks. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's something that comes out from the regulator and it has to be enforced within a certain time frame you don't have a say of whether or not you're going to enforce it. You have to enforce it or else you're not compliant. And so you really need to keep an eye over these things. 
<laughs> with with some of the stuff you worked on, was it primarily like mergers and acquisitions? Were you talking about uh, maybe a company looking to get an infusion of capital to to expand operations? Did you have or just a good mix of, of things that you've worked on in the past? Yeah, it's 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 a bit of both. So in banking, we did what we called mergers and acquisitions and mergers and acquisitions in banking is specific to signing the binding agreement. So. As far as you're concerned, if you're advising a client on the acquisition or the sale of a business, the second a share purchase agreement or a sale and purchase agreement is executed between both sides, the deal is considered done from your perspective as an advisor. And so that was something that I did for the first half of my career. The other thing that I did was on the active investment side, which means that after you sign that definitive documentation, you end up with a business. And so you really have to put your money where your mouth is and mm -hmm. you have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk because you have a, an investment committee you've got to report to. You've got a board you have to report to. And it's really your word on the line here. But the nature of the deals themselves are, yes, a combination between primary and secondary transactions, which means that some of them were, were a full sale by the shareholder or a partial sale by some of the shareholders where they would exit and they would take that money from the deal and cash it out to their pockets and leave. And in other cases, it would be an infusion of capital into the business where you'd have certain shareholders saying, we need an X amount of money. However, this money will be used at the business level and it will be used for these reasons. And for some of those ones with the, you know, if they're looking for capital infusion, maybe it's like pre-IPO stages, they're going through like a series A, a series B fund rounding type of thing. And they're going, oh yeah, we want to take this to, and, get that 5x or 10x valuation, how, whoever dictates that. That's, that's definitely a, who decides those values in the end. I've always been curious how that <laughs> how that calculation functions. But those can be in, in some of those areas like pre-IPO stage where somebody's saying, you know, I've got the next Uber, I've got the next Airbnb type of situation. Absolutely. And the, the most common need for capital in these instances would be expansion and growth. Mm -hmm. So they would be looking to raise money in order to maintain their growth rates or to enter new markets or sometimes to even acquire other businesses so that they could get to these growth numbers quicker. And is that something that you think people think about a lot? It's, it's going instead of trying to inherently build a skill set, you know, you need, you, uh, you know, from the, the base up that they go, hey, let's go see if we can go find that five or 10 person company startup or 20 person company startup that absolutely niches and specializes into that and try to bring them into the fold. Is that something that you know, you hear you hear about those things. I think Instagram even became one of those things with Facebook, just a small team. But is that something that more people should think about as a way to rapidly grow the business versus just an organic? Let's build this out. Let's you know, let's hit sales projections, but let's grow by bringing in additional skill sets. It's a really good question, John. I think it really depends on who is that party that is thinking about growth and what is their skill set because it's a very tricky process. It often entails very big egos. It often entails a lot of psychological. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you made me think of things in, the, in my of egos. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. It's 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 pretty common to have some sometimes clashes between the egos. It entails a lot of psychological biases that come into this equation. But if you look at it as an idea on paper, it's a brilliant idea because what you're essentially doing by exploring the inorganic route is you are buying speed and you are eliminating startup and execution risk. So you end up with something that has proof of concept. 
you end up with something that has validation from the market and you kind of know roughly what your downside is. But I don't think many operators today really explore it or give it the right amount of attention that it deserves simply because A, I'm biased, but B, I've seen how when executed in the right way, it could bring meaningful benefits, not just to the party acquiring that business, but also to the business being acquired. One of the things that I, uh, I think I saw correctly was you did a lot of work in like Dubai and, and maybe some mm -hmm. overseas Dubai. I hope I got the country right. Was there a lot more when dealing with global organizations? Because most of the stuff I've seen, you know, it's U.S. content, you know, that type of thing. Maybe yeah. maybe Canada has been involved or something along that line, but not like, you know, Europe and, you know, all kinds of different things. Is there a lot more hoops to jump through dealing with globally different different legal requirements from different countries and all that kind of stuff? to finally get something to come together and go, okay, we can, we can, we cross the finish line with this deal. Way, it's way more because we're dealing with all this red tape everywhere now. Absolutely. That's a great question also, John. There are many hoops because each country is different. And when you talk about deals at a bigger scale, you often need to get regulatory approvals. And so then the regulator has a certain set of criteria that need to be met. But also sometimes it's stuff that they don't really mention out in the public domain because they really want to make sure that their environment is benefiting from any deal that happens, that yeah. a certain number of jobs is created, that there is not really a big competitor coming from abroad trying to take their, you know, their local companies out of business. <laughs> right. um, these are things that sometimes derail a deal. But yeah, I mean, for every, for every transaction that happens, there needs to be a legal advisor on it. There needs to be a legal advisor on board. And ideally, a legal advisor that has an on-the-ground presence in the country where the deal is being made so that they can advise on whether or not there are any oversights with regards to compliance with local regulations. But yeah, I think the more you venture out, the more you realize there are things that you do not know that you do not know because every country is different. And is there stuff that you may have experienced where they've been inherently at odds with each other, where there is just diametrically opposed and you can't resolve these things? Because like you said, we don't want you to push out our local company that's been here for 10 years. You want to buy, yeah. you know, we, we, we want to see you come in because it may help them grow. But at the same time, we don't want to see it go away. And you've got to maybe you can't resolve that and it makes it fall apart. But is that is that yeah. something that you may have seen? Of course. So I've seen a lot of instances where certain companies would own land that has been granted by the government. And huh. this is particularly in industries that really serve the communities. So I'm talking about education, I'm talking about healthcare. Oftentimes there would be some kind of public-private partnerships where the government would try to incentivize private operators by giving them land or giving them facilities and be like, okay. why don't you come operate it? But where it gets tricky is when you bring in an international investor then that international investor would be in a position to indirectly own land that is granted. Mm, okay. And so it could get really tricky. Uh, you get a new set of hoops that you have to figure out in terms of structuring a deal and how to sometimes maybe carve out real estate from the deal itself. But yeah, it, it happens a lot. It does. It's just it's just curious because I you know it's uh, me not having had personal experience with that. Those are things that you're like, man, how do you navigate the waters with that stuff? It seems like it uber complicated and 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 take a a long time to 
to work those types of thing out when you're talking about all those different players that come into play. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the, the interesting thing here is that you've got some lawyers that make ridiculous amounts of money on a transaction. Because you're talking about billions of dollars in deals here, right? And yep. so both sides are not going to care about paying lawyers 5 or $10 million on a deal where they really are able to solve these kind of headaches that nobody saw coming or people were worried about. And when you when it comes to proposing new solutions in business that work well for everyone involved, I think this is where you can really hit gold. Now, you, you mentioned something there. You were talking about like some of the size of the deals and stuff like that. For you personally, what what different skill sets did you have to kind of learn and increase as the size of the deals and maybe the complexity of the deals got bigger? Or really, was it kind of the same process, but there's just more variables at play just as the numbers got bigger? It's a great question, John. It is, it is the same process. The only difference... I think, and this is something that would surprise a lot of uh, listeners, is the only thing that changes is maybe in terms of legal complexity, because above certain limits, you need to get certain approvals from the regulator. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the skill set as an investor, it really is the same. The only difference would be the number of zeros on your balance sheet and your income statement and your cash flow statement. It's the same okay. process that has to be honored. It's just the integrity of the process should not be different regardless of the size of the transaction because i mean even a car you would want to test it right, right. even even a even a house you'd want to you bring in someone to give you their opinion it's the same thing except for businesses you've got a lot of different moving parts and so what you want to make sure is that you don't miss out on anything so for example if you are a hospital that is up for sale or a healthcare operator and you want to estimate what the value of the equipment is obviously this is a skill set that needs a certain specialization you need to bring in someone who's going to inspect from a biomedical perspective give you an estimation of what that machinery is worth uh, what condition it's in what's it, what is its useful life and whether or not you're going to entail any more capital infusion once you become an owner because if you're going to have to invest more in certain equipment, then that should be factored into the whole deal discussion itself. But as a process, it's really, you just have to figure out what are the things that you need to diligence. You need to come up with your initial hypothesis, and then you have to conduct due diligence, either ideally yourself plus the advisors, to make sure whether or not that hypothesis holds or whether it needs to be revised. And speaking of that, I'm going to spring this on you. And if this is something you haven't really been tracking, then yeah, I will skip it. But I'm just curious on your thoughts. Have you seen what, you know, the, the whole thing with Twitter and Elon Musk? Because, uh -huh. you know, I, I, you know, I watched it and it was like, hey, I'm going to go buy Twitter, you know, that he announces basically in a tweet. And then it's like just a few weeks later, I'm going to buy it at this valuation. But then it seems like there was no true due diligence because it was literally like he was thinking by tweet. And then it's uh -huh. like, oh, you know, half of their, you know, a third of the company is just bots and automated stuff. It's not even, but, and, I, and in my own head, I'm going, man, if you had your legal team doing due diligence, wouldn't you have known that before you just start willy nilly announcing you're going to go buy the company? And, you know, now after the fact, you're using that as a way out. I, I, that was just me on the outside. I don't know any of the inner workings of that. But is that something that you watch that from the outside and go, does that make sense? Or that goes, what is he doing? <laughs> It actually makes sense as an outsider for, for me specifically because 
when you sign a non-binding letter of intent, or really, I, I didn't look at the legal agreement because I don't think mm -hmm. that's public domain, the specifics of the legal agreement, but oftentimes you'd have contingencies. You'd have certain conditions. So what that means is this would be, the valuation would be 40-something billion dollars, but that would be predicated on A, B, C, D, E. And once that is executed, only then do you have access to the books and to the data. So okay. If if he ended up, you know, signing that and then he went and asked the management team for all the information on the bots and all the accounts that are not actually verified and they were not able to provide that information, well, this is a red flag. You know, it could be that they had that information, but they didn't want to provide it because they knew this was going to be a red flag. <laughs> so, so I think that was a sign of diligence as opposed to a sign of, um, you know, not doing his homework. Now, whether or not he managed the aesthetics of it and the <laughs> PR side of it, I'm not sure. And I think he's very smart in the sense that he does everything for publicity and everyone benefits, you know, from he stays relevant. Everybody's always oh, looking sure. at what he says and what he's doing. And <laughs> it really helps. Uh, but, yeah, that's a great point. And I think he should have um, I think he should have known I that. I, I was just curious, you know, someone that's got your level of experience in the industry and then this being very social media public and all of that kind of stuff, just kind of what your thoughts were on how that's been going on. Because the last I heard a few days ago is it's back on again is the last the last word I heard. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the parties that end up getting hurt with these PR stunts are the average retail investors yeah. right. who would you know hear something they would think it's interesting they'd be tempted to speculate they put in some money and then the next thing you know is that news comes out that is opposing their hypothesis so they end up losing money they sell because they think the deal's dead and then a week later the deal's back on and i think ideally i mean from my from my experience you would only announce deals upon completion and a deal is only complete once the shares are transferred and the money's transferred and certain con conditions precedent are satisfied. So there's a term called CPs in deal making, which, which, which Im implies that for a deal to be complete, even if we sign binding documentation, we need to satisfy certain conditions upon which we can exchange the shares and the funds. And only then is the deal considered complete because then you can no longer go back on the deal. Gotcha. And so you could then announce it because it's done. <laughs> but anything in between is is really just media stunts because it could go either way. <laughs> well, we know he likes to drive the media. But yeah. it, uh, shifting gears a little bit. So now that you, you've got all the, the banking and the investment banking, private equity, mergers, acquisition experience, you've kind of pivoted. It's the reason that uh, I, I believe you wrote the book. You've got your online course. Uh, the game of uh, value creation is actually helping businesses begin to put in the frameworks in place necessary to take it to that next level. Correct? Yes, absolutely. So, is there any is there any specific niche after your previous experience that you're that you're kind of focusing in on to go? This is where I'm honing in on um, that that you feel like you specialize in. Or is it kind of just the frameworks are the frameworks? I, I'm a personal believer that for the most part, the frameworks are the frameworks, and they. And they relatively apply across the board, but you're, yeah. you know, more than me. <laughs> um, I think the the key idea that I'm 
trying to promote and the work that I'm focusing on right now is to look at what the best companies in the world are doing and not just look at them from a PR and you know media standpoint, but to really look at what they do different that private companies sometimes do not realize. And if you really drill down into what these big companies do differently, you could really distill it into four key enablers uh, of value creation. So if I can get into these four enablers, I would summarize them as the following. One, they know how to protect their resources. They know how to secure the outlook of the business and limit the downside in the face of adversity. And the technical term for that is corporate governance. So the big companies that are really, really thriving do that very, very well. That's the first value enabler. The second one is in order to procure resources and allocate them in the right channels. And what I mean by that is allocate them in a way that maximizes return on investment, but also minimizes opportunity cost. They focus on what we call strategic finance. They're very smart with how they use their cash. It's not just sitting as cash in the bank account if it has no use. It's often invested in the right places. So that's the second enabler. The third one is to grow and optimize the core operations in a predictable and consistent manner. You're going to need corporate strategy. And so corporate strategy could be something organic, like focusing on organic growth, which leverages the capabilities and resources that businesses has today. And it could also be inorganic through mergers and acquisitions or JVs. In other words, inorganic leverages capabilities that the business is yet to attain. It doesn't have that capability today, but it could leverage it by acquiring that which, capability or that know-how. Which we hinted at earlier in the conversation exactly. about bringing the skill sets in. Yep. Exactly. And then that's the third value enabler. And then the fourth one is to bring all these enablers together and cultivate the right attitudes within each stakeholder group. You're going to need the right leadership. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need to create the right environment where the business is not overly dependent on one leader or a existing group of leaders such that when they leave, the whole business falls apart. You need to create and cultivate the right leadership environment so that A, you can sustain leadership in the business and B, bring all these different enablers together. And so all the business solutions, strategies and tactics that you can think of likely fall within one of these four value enablers. I mean, think about it for a second. What are the needs of a business for it to achieve its highest level of success? It's the need to be protected the need to grow, the need to be optimized, the need to procure and allocate resources in the right way, and the need to develop the right people with the right attitudes. Mm -hmm. when, when these needs are met, a whole new frequency for value creation is tapped. And I think when you look at it that way, and when you see what these publicly listed companies are doing right, be it because the regulator forces them to do it that way, or because they know that this is the right way to go about working in and on a business, value creation becomes feasible, exciting, and consistent. And when the, what this does is it translates into happy employees, happy customers, happy boards, and more importantly, happy communities. And then enhancing the value of a business no longer becomes 
as ridiculous or uncertain to expect. It becomes a given if it is approached in that way, predictably, consistently, and with the right level of strategic patience. No, and I like that overview because it, it very much aligns with kind of my thinking of of how things optimally would function, you know, in that kind of ideal environment. Unfortunately, personally, I <laughs> there's a lot of non-ideal environments out there. So I want to I want to I got a couple leading questions, and then I want to go through those 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 value statements in a little bit more depth, maybe be a little bit more tactical. Sure. So, do you think that any type of business that somebody starts, whether it's a plumbing company to they developed a new widget has the ability to grow to be a sellable asset to create a value that can be sold merged acquired any or is it really just going to be the niche that next thing somebody's got a specific twist or that idea that's not been really generated yet it's coming five years from now oh no and I, and i and i know this seems a little bit generic of an answer but i think any business really any business that has the right mindset and the right strategy and more importantly mm. the right attitude and ability to act on a certain strategy has a has a good chance of being successful and ultimately being sold absolutely I, and and i would agree with that now how now with you with you know it's kind of like you got to be selective with who you work with the last thing you, you got a lot of people that go i Oh, I really want to do this. I've got these big gigantic goals. I want to go from six figures to seven figures to 10 figures, blah, 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 blah. But how do you truly identify a leadership team, a CEO, an owner of an existing company that's been around for years? You know, they, they maybe have made it through some milestones, but then they flatline. You know, it comes to this flatline thing and, and you go and I believe that some of their problem is always is one of those four things you've already talked about before. There's no, the structure, the structure, yeah. the fine, all that kind of stuff. But how do you identify truly the leader that is finally ready to make the changes necessary to get out of their own way? It's, it's rather simple. I, I believe in the idea that you could only take a business as far as you can take it, right? You could only achieve something as far as, you've done before or you're doing right now but in order to go to the next level there is a very humbling factor that comes into the equation it's a asking for help and b be willing to accept help and i think this is the resistance that a lot of leaders who often have the respect and admiration of the organization they tend to resist that idea because it is hard to say that I'm going to accept a different way of thinking because I'm the person responsible to this level of success so far. And what's, what, what is that going to imply if I tell you know someone that I need help and that I'm willing to accept it? Is it a sign of weakness? I think it's a sign of courage and strength, but you could only take something as far as you've gone ultimately. And if you are able to bring in the right insights and new solutions into the equation, and more importantly, accept that kind of help, I think you stand a way better chance than going through that trial and error phase. And this is something we used to talk a lot about with prospective portfolio companies that we would be looking to acquire. And the dream for a lot of them would be to get listed one day because for the shareholders, that would mean a very big payday, right? But 
the value add we would have as active investors is tell them, listen, we have the skill set because we've done it before. And so if you're doing this for the first time, you're probably going to bump your head because we have multiple times on many fronts. And so having someone who's done it multiple times before, by the way, made a lot of mistakes in the process because you're bound to make mistakes is an asset for you. And if you're willing, we can collaborate on that. And we think we'll get you there quicker and with more certainty. And those that are willing to accept help and acknowledge that they need help would benefit far more than those who'd be like, well, I'd rather do it by myself because I mm -hmm. like having that control. And able to keep them consistently on the path, I think is, you know, it, you know, there, whether that's having those little small, tiny little milestones to show some progress in there to make yeah. them feel like they're making it toward that next thing. I just had uh, several experiences in the last few years with companies that say, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to go there. And then just the effort wasn't put into place. Yeah. You know, the, the the knowledge around their own finances was not there. And then it was becoming shocking as you would uncover things. Um, no systems and processes in place that were repeatable. You know, yeah. leadership that would come and just insert themselves at the wrong possible time into a process to make things fall apart. And it's trying to get those, trying to get that formalized and, like you said, optimized in there. Um, speaking of some of the... Uh, I want to go back because I'm curious. It wasn't something I saw in the way that the, the initial phrasing was when I was looking it up, but protecting your resources. Um, I come from uh, the cybersecurity background. You know, obviously that yeah. is gigantic now in pretty much everything with data protection, general risk management. But I think you're taking that even a step further with supply chain. You know, you, you're not at risk of your business because you're you're limited on maybe only one supply chain vendor for a critical critical component or a critical part uh -huh. or something like that. What do you look at when you're talking about? Because that was the, that was the first one you said actually of all the four was protecting yeah. your re protecting what you have. Can you go a little yeah. bit in deeper into into what it takes to protect yourself properly. Sure, and I think the reason I talk about it the f like first and foremost as for me, I think it's the most important enabler because when you have a certain level of success in a business or it's something that you've built from scratch, there's nothing worse than losing it. There's nothing worse than seeing it fall apart. And when you first start in business, it's not something you think about because you really have nothing to lose except what you already can identify, such as your time and the initial capital committed. But when you have success, demonstrated success, you need to figure out a way to make sure that you could lock in that level of, of success to a certain level of predictability or to limit your downside, because then you have something much more substantial to lose. And Governance is all about protecting your future outlook. And that translates into valuation discussions dramatically because the majority of the valuation methodologies used in the business world are reliant on future cash flows. Okay. And so if you are not able to secure your future cash flows to a certain degree of predictability, then that's going to hit your valuation. And so... You might think that having a key person risk dependency is not a big deal, but if you think about it more simply with what I just shared is, is like the following. If a key person leaves today and they're going to take with them all their relationships, all their know-how, all their decision-making capabilities, 
how will that impact your future cash flows? How will that impact the future outlook of the business? It's going to get significantly worse. And I see that a lot because oftentimes businesses that are sold by the founder team who is looking to exit completely are based on a certain valuation. But then when the new founder comes in, who's never going to be as passionate about that business as the departing one, the, everything is going to change. The relationships are going to change. Customers are going to be like, who are you? How do we know you're going to be consistent? How, how do we know that you're going to maintain the same quality of service? How do we know that you're going to have our back when we need you the most? And so it's like you bought something, but then you ended up coming into something totally different after that key person leaves. And so with governance, you want to limit that key person risk. You want to cut it off. And the way you do it is through a variety of different measures. And we'll dive deeper into that. So you need things like your policies. You need things like your procedures. Mm -hmm. You need things like your business processes. You need things like your systems. And what that does is it safeguards that know-how and it safeguards that expertise in the business. And more importantly, it safeguards the flow of that know-how. So when you have the right organization structure in a business, you are essentially managing the workflow and the decision-making capabilities of a business. When each hierarchy level knows what it's authorized to do and what it can sign off on and what can it approve and what needs to be I don't know, sought approval for, the game becomes different. Then it doesn't matter as much if that key person on the top who used to do everything himself or herself leaves because that working system can take care of that mm -hmm. for you. And so you can maintain a level of consistency in your marketplace and not be disrupted. Another way uh, to, uh, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to ask. You hit on something that I have preached repeatedly in there, and it's having the systems and processes. As a matter of fact, I, I, I kind of phrased it like uh, running a project. In a project, mm -hmm. you've got to have clearly defined roles and responsibilities within there to ex execute. It's no different than any stakeholder thing. I said, take those principles, apply them to the business. But yeah. how do how do you getting how do you get that delegation uh, that comfort level? Because that's where I usually see the resistance at from the top. It's like, oh no, we can't have anybody have you know. Hey, I, I'm like, say, give me an annual budget or give me a transactional budget where I can't do something. You know, give me the you've got to start releasing those reins if you want to go beyond yourself. How do you Absolutely. get somebody comfortable with that? Because I find that to be critical on on, re, you know, one, freeing up the quote unquote, the leadership's time from that getting in that minutia, but also allowing everybody else room to breathe through their job and getting the grease rolling in those systems and processes. But how do you get them comfortable with that? Uh, very easy. You do that like you do with anything that requires change and the resistance that comes with it. You tell them what's in it for them. If you are able to explain to whatever stakeholder level what is in it for them from giving you something they already have, because you have to keep in mind, for them, it might feel in the heat of the moment like they are giving away something. Mm -hmm. They are losing control. They are losing power, right? And they might not be aware of what they're gaining in that exchange. In reality, they are doing their business a huge favor because the second their dependence, the dependency on their capabilities goes down, their business is more valuable. Whoever's going to come acquire their business is going to see something 
that is operational with or without them. And they will be happy to see them walk away because they know that to a certain level of predictability, the business is going to continue to operate. It's not going to fall apart. And so change is probably the most, it's probably the trickiest element in in, in business, especially transformational change. For example, when you have certain um, org structures that you're looking to change, you have a current way, current reporting lines, and you're trying to optimize reporting lines and authority matrices. And mm -hmm. obviously the first thing people are going to freak out about is how is this going to affect me? Does that mean I still have a job? <laughs> right. Right. You're absolutely, I, I laugh, but you are dead on. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the, the, The first and foremost element when it comes to transformational change is communication and specifically the right kind of communication. It's providing the right assurances, explaining the why, and giving the right incentives, right? If, if you are able to communicate to any stakeholder level, depending on what their needs are and what their fears are, how change is going to benefit them, they're much more likely to take ownership of it and, and, and be in favor of it. And so I think going back to the owner or the key person at the top, if you are able to tell them that, you know, generally businesses that do not have key person risk dependency sell for a much higher valuation than those that do, and that this is not going to be an abrupt type of change. This is going to be a systemized way. We're going to break it down into many milestones. We're going to have different uh, people with ownership levels at different stages in the business, different hierarchies in the business do it. And if at any point in time there's something you're not comfortable with, we're going to make sure we look at it and address it and fix it. But remember, ultimately, this is going to benefit not just the business. It's going to benefit you as well. I mean, what more do they want? I think you're much more likely to bring them on board when you present change that way. Yeah, I would, well, at least I would say I should hope so. There's still, it, it, it is, it comes, it's reducing the fear. I think there's a fear mindset in a lot of that stuff. You're talking about, they're saying they're losing control, but I've also seen the thing where, where those roles and responsibilities have not clearly defined. The owner, the, the, the top leader goes out on vacation for two weeks or three weeks, and then all chaos rises because then everybody's jockeying for position within an yeah. organization, you know, and, and that's something you want to avoid. Uh, yeah. And, and I've also noticed that the more that you can delegate, the more that you can empower your team, the more that they feel, hey, I've got a piece of this in there. At least that's yeah. how I have functioned. I've got a piece of this and I and me is being able to say, hey, go take it and run with it. Man, they're more than happy to do it because people want to prove themselves. They don't want to feel part of the process. So I think Absolutely. it's another reason, another reason to do there. But sorry, I, I, I digressed. Continue. No, no, you're spot on here. You're spot on. And you know what's funny is that those who leave for a couple of weeks are not happy with the idea that they could not leave for two yeah. weeks with everyone calling them and asking for very petty approvals over very small cost <laughs> items because they don't have the authority for it. I have a very specific story about getting approval for a $1 item. And you're oh talking about I was I was running in a full IT department and, and also managing government contracts. Yeah. And I had somebody come to me. They actually, it was four $1 items. And, wow. and part of what I always look for and what we've, we've hinted around, but we haven't used the term bottlenecks. You're, you're trying to blow up the bottlenecks within an organization. So things function flowingly. Yeah. And there was a bottleneck in the organization that wanted to approve everything. And finally I was kind of like, screw it. I told the team, I said, go get the stuff. It's four bucks. I'm tired of waiting on this. They tried to chew me out. I said, I will do it again. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Give me a freaking break. 
and you don't know the whole story. Well, I said, don't make me wait three weeks for a four dollars, <laughs> you know, in in total. I'm like, you can't run, you can't run a, you know, at that time, an eight figure business and have that type of junk get in your way. I just, I yes. wasn't acceptable to me. Anyway, it's that also- was a very that's what happened to me. This was years ago. <laughs> no, but it happens. It's much more common than than uh, than we'd like to think. And there's also this thing called decision making fatigue, irrespective yes. of the decision itself. Um, very successful people limit the number of decisions they have to mm-hmm. make in a certain day, especially decisions that do not have a meaningful impact on the direction of the business. And so. You don't want to be someone who's approving or deciding on 15 different things and going into all the scenario analysis and figuring out what's the base case, what's the upside case, what's the downside case, how many scenarios are likely to happen for, okay, what does each one look like over something petty. You're going to be exhausted and your ability to make meaningful decisions over things that really matter is going to be compromised and you don't want that. No, absolutely. I can't remember. I've heard that same thing. Uh, you know, I, I've used the term decision fatigue as well because you're making even just in your personal life, you're making all those micro decisions a day. And the, and that's why, like for me personally, I don't need to dress like, you know, Steve Jobs did with the same thing. But it's like, yeah, if I can make the decision, like setting up my clothes the night before, before I have to do it, it's just there the next day. And so yeah. I do stuff like that. But I can't remember. I have heard that from some top level CEOs, some bios that I had read where it's like, if I make one decision per week, that drives the, the direction of the business, I'm super happy. And that's all they focus on was just that one decision. And, yeah. and, and I just, I, I, for the, for the life of me, I can't think of who, who those ones were. Cause it was definitely more than one. I, I'm sure we've probably read the same ones. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that uh, funny? It, oh yeah, for sure. I want to sw- talking about, you know, uh, you know, we've talked about the governance and stuff like that. I want to, and, I wanted to talk about something related to the finances and the education that leaders need to understand within their own finances, because this is something that I have seen when I have had conversations with companies that can get to that stalling point. And they they say they want to grow, but they're not. And again, it's uh, this also comes back down to change management again, not willing to change where the the target demographic is they've kind of scratched and clawed their way up they're getting a certain level of cash flow coming in their top line revenue but it's flatlined because as their team has grown they've not pivoted to that higher value client because they don't understand their own numbers when it comes to lifetime value of clients cost of acquisition of clients you know uh implementing or onboarding a client or things of that nature that they've got this now, this where there was like maybe three of them. Now there's 50 of them, but they're still chasing the little guys and, and trying yeah. to make that pivot that they need to go to a new target demo. But they're so scared of being able to do that. Plus, they don't they don't even track those numbers. How much how much financial literacy do you think as, as you're trying to grow that the, that ownership group needs to really immerse themselves in so they truly understand going back to even protecting and, and, and reducing risk? To, to really get a grasp on, you know, the numbers of the business so they know they're moving in the right direction. It's, it's, um, unfortunately, there's no way to sugarcoat it. You can get, you can get away from knowing your numbers because even in the most low stake conversations that you're going to be having, the second you do not show that you're able to talk comfortably about your volumes or your revenues or your, whether or not your business is profitable or whether or not you're having cash flow shortages, it's going to be very hard to gain that credibility, be it with clients or investors or even banks. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, there's certain KYC, know your customer processes and all that stuff that goes with all these banking and lenders. Uh, 
you need that for your own credibility. You need that for if, if you do not know, for example, your revenue breakdown, what are your biggest contributors to revenue? What kind of products are doing the best and what are the gross margins on, on your most popular products? Also, these things are going to not make you look good. And <laughs> and it's for a good reason, because it shows that you're not on top of finances and you cannot really go into that next level and break that glass barrier if you're not on top of finances because and this is something that many people i think do not fully grasp um a business can be loss making and stay operational but the second a business runs out of cash it's gone and so it's not that you have to continuously report profits it's you need to know you know, what's your cash standing today? What are your cash requirements tomorrow? If you're booking revenues upon sending invoices, but still recording accounts receivable figures, and you're still chasing clients to pay you for revenues that you already booked, you might be reporting profits, but you don't have the cash to back it up. And so what's going to happen to you? And so you, there's no way around it because also the way a business is valued is by looking at the quality of its earnings and by its cash flows and by how well it's growing and how well it's doing. And so if you're not on top of this stuff, why should someone bet on you that you are? Right? You need to you need to demonstrate a certain level of proficiency. And I'm not talking the most sophisticated things and sit in front of an investor and tell them why your valuation is that much and mm-hmm. back it up with all the nitty gritty assumptions that you know these big fancy bankers do. It's about showing that you've done your homework on your own baby and I think when you do that people start taking you seriously because it's a paradox right if you wanna if you wanna get big you need to be big if you wanna get bigger deals if you wanna get bigger clients you need to be a bigger fish it doesn't it, this is how it works if you want bigger contracts you need to show that you're a big service provider or a product seller it, it, there's no escaping it no, so you I, need to know. Yeah, I had I had a situation uh, again, and this was without even knowing the numbers. You know, when you've been around long enough that your your antennas kind of go up and go something's something's not right. Uh, I go into a, a first meeting, and there's like six or seven other people, and it's a kickoff for a new project. And I sit there. I don't really know anybody at the table because it was like my first day there, second day there, something like that. And I'm I'm listening to them talk. And and knowing the the tech industry as well as I did, I'm sitting there going, and then somebody uh, somebody says how large the company the the client was, and I went whoa whoa whoa, how much revenue does these guys bring? And they told me, and I said guys, we just blew the year's worth of revenue in this meeting right now with the eight of us sitting around this table. That was the size of the client they were dealing with, so not including what it was going to be with the onboard process once we leave the meeting or how much it cost the sales guy to bring these clients to the table and how long that took. And I'm sitting there going, all right, how often now, if this is my first instance here in my very first experience, how often does this happen across the board? Yeah. It ended up unfortunately being very frequently in that particular situation. But it, 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 it goes to show as you're looking, like you said, trying to become that bigger fish, you gotta learn to start pivoting into those bigger things and not be scared of that change that's necessary. Absolutely. And so let me give an insight into into what could that look like as an example. So smaller businesses usually talk just revenue and profit. But the second you start getting into bigger discussions, you need to start talking about 
operating profit. Mm -hmm. You need to start talking about EBITDA. You yep. need to start talking about net debt. You need to at least have an indication of what your free cash flow is. And I think this is where it can be a little intimidating, but in reality, mm -hmm. it's it's simple. It's just a formula. It's just a way of you know stripping out whatever you deem is non-core to the business, non-recurring, and just presenting as clean numbers as you can. Yeah, no, and, and totally makes sense. And I, I think there's something, and we, we didn't talk about this at the also, but I can ask it now because it ties into this. When you're starting out, do you think it's good to be very specific to go, I want to, you know, from the onset, I really want to take this thing to the moon or versus going, you know, talking about like that legacy business versus the one that says I'm looking for a lifestyle business. You know, I'm very good at this particular job set. I'm just looking to do this at a smaller scale. Do you need to be very explicit about that going forward? Or is that something you, if you started out going, oh, this is small and then it kind of blows up, you know, maybe just by however you function it, that you can then pivot and get into that super growth mode? Hmm. I, th I think I think having the right intention is definitely key here. I, I, I have to get. OK. Yeah. I, I, and there's nothing wrong with wanting a lifestyle business. And I think people who like lifestyle businesses do it for the right reasons that suit them. And there's nothing also wrong about wanting something more financially rewarding than that. But I think mm -hmm. with the lack of the right intention, it's going to be significantly harder to reach a situation where you say this is a lifestyle business, but it's now blowing up and I don't know what to do. I think that situation is less likely to happen than to be like, this started as a lifestyle business. It's proving to be better than I expected. Let me see where I can go with this. I'm curious and I'm excited to take this forward. <laughs> Again, it's about intention. But what really matters is defining with clarity and intent where you want to go. It's It sounds a little cheesy, but we've all heard about how important it is to write down your goals down and mm -hmm. write them down with a certain level of clarity and and the right kind of details and, and to write them down in a measured way. So to quantify things if we can, because the more clear you are in writing down your goals, the more likely you are going to be able to break them down into actionable steps and milestones and the more likely they're going to be executable. It's the same with a business, right? It's the same with a business. When you sit down and write down a business plan for a business, you're doing the goals for that business. And you're breaking down all the milestones the business has to go through in order to meet these goals. Now, yes, you might need to pivot. Things are not going to be as you initially planned. But you're much more likely going to be able to achieve a successful outcome if you have a clear indication with clear detail of where it is you want to go versus not having that. No, I I think it makes sense. You kind of don't want to go in the path and just close your eyes and just start walking. And then you're just going to run off the cliff or run into a wall. Yeah. For, okay, for somebody that now coming, you know, with the background that you've got and you now helping helping the organization, you know, companies get that get the frameworks in place to really grow to the next level. How does how does someone go about finding the proper investment, you know, person or group, private equity groups? 
to actually approach where where how do you start that research process to go we think we got we think we got our ducks in a row and we're looking to get some some help going to the next level um yeah how did how do they how where do they go what's resources to go even look for that type of stuff sure I think there's uh, there's no shortage of cash out there for the right ideas and the right opportunities and more importantly the right people who have a certain level of track record in doing what they're doing. I think one way to go about it is to uh, go to focus groups, is do some quick searches online to see the different levels of capital that is available and the different types of capital that is available depending on the size of the business every investor has different parameters that they look at when investing in something you've got certain investors that would invest in an idea provided the team leading it has a certain track record and you have other investors that look only at companies that are stable and mature and that could pay potential dividends because that's what they do um, but i would say it's a combination of private investors sometimes you could go through the small business administration and see what kind of support they're giving talk to banks even if it's not going to go anywhere or you don't like banks and i get it but when you go You're, through that process you know what the risks are with your business even if you can't see them yourself they're going to tell you listen this is too risky there's too much variation you only have two clients you don't have market validation yet you know, and these are the same reservations that are going to come from an equity investor. Totally makes sense at that point. When it comes to, we, we talked about this and I kind of joked about it before, who actually, as you're going through that valuation process, whether you're looking to sell or you're looking to, to bring on other partners or investors, you're flushing out your board of directors, who actually has the final say that says, hey, you know, you you got a million dollars top line revenue, but we're going to do you at three times. Who actually has the final say on that type of stuff? Being that there's so many people, as you mentioned that before, lawyers, auditors, technical folks, you know, that comes at that final number. It's ultimately between the buyer and the seller. But the party that has the more leverage is the party that is less desperate and the party that is willing to say no and actually mean it and walk away. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Did that in a house. I did that and I'm trying to buy a house a few years ago, and that's exactly the situation I was in, and I was able to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, this is uh, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation and, and a lot of insight. For anybody listening, please go check out uh, the the book, The Game of Value Creation. Check out the online training. Is there anywhere else, any online uh, social media to reach out to you? It's mostly the website for now. I think mostly the website? Yeah, I think on the website there... There's my email there. And uh, yeah, I think the book is a great place to start and see if this is something you like. I think it's going to help you because I, I wrote it with the intent of educating and it might be a little bit dry because it has a lot of technical information, but I did that intentionally. I think the intent is to provide a stepping stone and to provide you know fresh perspective and new solutions, even if you just take them and interpret them in your own way. The second you know how the big public companies are run and how they approach value creation, your approach to value creation is going to change too. And so I highly encourage you to grab a copy and go through it and reach out to me if uh, there's more you want to discuss or if you need help in any way whatsoever. I'd be more than happy to help you. 
No, and I and I totally agree. Ever after having even went through the book, you know, it's one of those things. It's not fluff. It's very tactical on how to approach things. And I think, I think that's what a lot of people need. You know, personally, it's you know, here's you know, one through ten. Here's the steps to go through to try to start building things out. If you're truly serious about you know making the changes and making the progress that you want. Absolutely. Carl, I've had a blast, man. I, I really appreciate the insight and the expertise that you brought from the investment world, and particularly in the beginning with just my random questions that I've always wanted to ask somebody that's had that type of experience, and then obviously going through the breakdown. I really appreciate that it. Was, that was a lot of fun, John. Thank you for having me. Thank you very yeah. much for having me.